Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, we're heading into Christmas, but it's not bringing cheer for the Prime Minister. Apart from that is the news that he's had a new baby daughter. The hangover from last year's Downing Street Christmas get-together shows no sign of clearing. If anything, it's getting worse for the Prime Minister. After a week of denying that any party took place, mounting pressure has seen Boris Johnson ask Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, the top civil servant, to investigate whether a party did or did not take place. The Times is talking about as many as seven gatherings which might need discussion. We're going to talk about the row, the response, where this goes next. From one controversial office Christmas party to cancel Christmas parties across the land. Yes, in a televised press conference on Wednesday, the Prime Minister announced that Plan B was kicking in. Mandatory masks, vaccine passports for some things, back to working from home if we can. So is this going to work? What happens now as well? And in any other week, Afghanistan would be topping the headlines. In evidence to MPs, a 25-year-old Foreign Office whistleblower described the UK's withdrawal from Kabul as dysfunctional and chaotic, leaving Dominic Raab, Foreign Secretary at the time, facing tough questions that he also may have thought had gone away. We'll take a closer look at the fallout. Joining me are the IFG's senior fellow double act, Catherine Haddon and Jill Rutter. Hi, both. Hello. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined as well by Laura Hughes, diplomatic and political correspondent at the Financial Times. Hi, Laura. Busy week. Hello. <laughs> Just a bit. When will it stop? Not right at the moment. So we'll get on to talk about all that. Very good to have you here. Let's start with the first one. A tricky case, you might call it. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. But this week, let's talk about the Christmas Party if there was one. Perhaps it was just wine and cheese, as one number 10 staffer was caught joking on film. Kath, this story has been rumbling for a week. Would it have gone away if it weren't for that video? Well, I mean, we discussed it a week ago on this podcast. And, you know, the view then was there is a good chance that that this will move on. And, you know, it was just about how the the government were going to handle it. Move Move on in the sense of go away? Uh, yeah, in the sense, I mean, it probably wouldn't have gone away entirely, you know, alongside all the other scandals that, you know, we've been talking about over the, the course of the year. It, it was going to rumble on in the background, no doubt, but it, it might not have reached the proportions that it had if the government, you know, in the first place hadn't, you know, come up with a better line than the one they've had over the last week. But yes, I think the video that was released, that really sent it sort of stratospheric because, you know, there you had on tape members of, number 10, effectively, talking about a party that had happened only a few days beforehand. And whether or not, you know, they meant it was supposed to be fictional, it just, it too much seemed like the smoking gun and it was on tape. And worse than that, they were laughing about it. And that really, really just brought it home to everyone and, you know, made it inescapable for the Prime Minister that he had to apologise. And that they, of course, included Allegra Stratton being trained up at that point in that video to be the Prime Minister's main spokeswoman. What is the the that that we're talking about? How many parties or gatherings might we be talking about? Well, we don't really know. And I'm sure we'll get into this about, you know, there's going to be obviously, and I'm sure Simon Case's review, the what is a party and what is just a gathering or a grabbing a bottle of wine and putting it on your desk when you're working an 18 hour day. But I mean, the important thing is, you know, how it's perceived to the public. And you've been having too many stories leaking out about the number of people that were there. And this particular one that we're talking about, which is the 18th of December last year, which was just days before the you know, Prime Minister effectively cancelled Christmas. 
Christmas for the country. And only a short time after London had gone into, you know, very strict measures. And, you know, this one, you're hearing about catering being brought in, about a secret Santa, um, about people staying until the early hours. Obviously, we don't know the full details of that. It can't be that difficult for people in number 10 to find out what the full details of that are. But it's the way in which it's being perceived and, and particularly the idea that there's this double standards going on. And those details you've mentioned, that sounds like an organised party. It's not just having some wine after after work or, or as work goes on into the evening. That sounds like some organisation behind it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think this will matter in terms of Simon Case's review because that's partly to look at, at sanctions for staff. But I honestly don't think that matters anymore in terms of the public perception because anything now that looks like they were having a good time drinking whilst at work, it doesn't matter really the excuses that are given about how hard they were working. And undoubtedly, that was incredibly hard at that time. But that to the public now, it's kind of gone beyond that. It's one of these cases where the perception of it is just always going to dominate now whatever really did go on. Jill, you've been involved in government communications right at the heart of government. What do you make of the government's handling of this? Um, Well, government's handling is frankly pretty terrible. I mean, it's very clear... They failed to have a uh, decent line to take on this party. And over that year, they've clearly failed to come up with a decent line to take. Um, So I think there are various questions that are raised. I think the right handling would have been the one that the Department for Education seems to have adopted about their party, which would be to admit uh, that something went on, if indeed it did. And it looks like there's clear evidence that something did now. I think the right approach is the one that the Department for Education seems to have taken about their Christmas gathering to admit, describe, and if necessary, apologise. So if they managed to say, yes, we did have a few people in the press office, we did this, we did that. Problem is, maybe they don't think they can get away with that because it looks like such such an egregious party. But I think the more interesting thing, and I think Kath has written about this this morning, is this question of who actually told the Prime Minister that he could assure Parliament and all those ranks of ministers who've been out on the airwaves until the video came out that they should be going ahead and denying that there was any breach of anything or anything that looked like a breach of the rules. And I think that raises really, really interesting questions. Actually, I think that's the real issue now. And what on earth is going on in number 10? Did the Prime Minister actually really believe them. I mean, this wasn't just days before the big announcement. It was the day before. So the Prime Minister was working late in his office, not at Chequers, where he might have been forgiven for missing a party going on in the same building, not that bigger building. And who did no one at number 10 say to the Prime Minister, I think you're on thin ground here, thin ice here. Or importantly, did they say that and he's ignored it, in which case it's, you know, it's on him, really. Laura, Your perspective from the heart of Westminster, this story is, after all, talking about events that took place a year ago. Why is it so damaging? I think the reason it is so damaging, particularly from a a kind of journalist perspective, is the way that the number 10 operation has handled allegations of a party over the last week. I mean, at the beginning, they were denying a party ever happened. And then they were saying no rules were broken. But Clearly, it's impossible for no rules to have broken at an event that took place, because if that event took place, the rules would have been broken. And then 
Boris Johnson's sort of refusal to acknowledge a party had taken place and just the, the rep- repetition of the same line as journalists every day were reporting accounts of people who were at said party on the 18th of December. It just looked pretty extraordinary. And this sort of absolute reluctance to be honest and be upfront. And I think that is what has massively backfired. And that is why a lot of Conservative MPs that I've been talking to are so frustrated. And the point was made earlier, the Department for Health, sorry, the Department for Education immediately admitted to having the party. And and I think that might have been the, the best way for this to have been handled. Let me just explore that for a second. Do you think it was actually possible for the Prime Minister to say, look, gatherings did happen in retrospect, unwise. These were people who had lateral flow tests every day. They were working as a big team. They had some drinks after work. Uh, we shouldn't have done that nonetheless. Was that really possible? Because this is the Prime Minister. It's not the Department for Education, which has had all kinds of problems, lost uh, its, its its Secretary of State and its its permanent secretary in the, the past year. There's been a if you like, changing of the guard there. This, this is about the Prime Minister. Could he have, as some newspapers this morning are encouraging him to, or, or thinking, speculating he should have said, could he have have treated it differently in that way? I think so. I think it would have shut down the story a bit earlier. That the constant denials just encourage journalists to keep digging and to keep trying to find people to talk to. And that's why we saw more details emerging about possible awards being handed out, Christmas jumpers being worn. And actually, if he'd been a bit more upfront, he might have been able to get ahead of this. It, it feels to me very much as if the situation it just got completely out of control. Wednesday morning when we didn't have Sajid Javid out on the airwaves at a moment of really, quite frankly, a public health crisis showed you the absolute panic that was happening within Number 10 and within Downing Street. And I think especially given stories of the last few weeks, allegations of sleaze, the Owen Patterson affair, it really does feed the Labour narrative that the Prime Minister is not a serious politician, that he doesn't tell the truth. I just think that the, the attempted cover-up is, you know, as bad as the crime. And it, it really, the suggestion that we've been taken or the public's been taken for fools does stand when you look at the way they just kept sort of talking themselves around in circles. What is the danger for the Prime Minister? Um, I mean, as you've been describing... It feeds this narrative, which the Owen Patterson case does as well, and the Barnard Castle of one rules for the general population, one rules for those in power. But he's now stood up at the dispatch box, hasn't he? And he's made various promises about what he will do. Is that presenting some danger to him? I think it is. I spoke to a serving minister yesterday who said the prime minister's biggest, biggest danger is actually himself. And I think the way that he's handled this looks incredibly bad because if he is found to have misled MPs, that will be incredibly damaging to him. I think few would believe it was possible for these parties to be going on, you know, in his own house beneath his flat without his knowledge. And and there are specific parties that are going to be looked into one on 27th of November, which was a leaving party where I understand Boris Johnson himself entered at one point and gave and gave a little speech. You know, the, 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 that wraps him into this. But, you know, what knowledge did he have of these parties? And, and, and has he basically effectively lied about them? And if that can be proved, 
I think that is incredibly damaging. Jill, what about this question of whether he may be shown to have lied to Parliament? What's the significance of what he, he conceded to Keir Starmer yesterday? Well, if he knowingly misled Parliament, then, uh, and Kath is a uh, real expert on this, then that's, really come to Kath. Yes. that's the <laughs> great egregious breach of the ministerial code. Uh, so we'd yet again have another position in which uh, the Prime Minister appeared to have breached the ministerial code. We know that ministers um, are supposed to resign if they mislead Parliament. So if the Prime Minister knowingly did that, he's in an obviously an extraordinarily difficult position. Does he sanction himself and resign? Uh, you might think Boris Johnson isn't a resigning type. Is that the thing then that triggers the ultimate political sanction, which is those letters from Conservative backbenchers being sent in to Sir Graham Brady, chairman of the 1922 committee, to trigger a confidence vote? And has the Prime Minister tipped himself into being viewed as a bigger liability than electoral asset, which is the thing that would probably make his colleagues finally decide that maybe they need to look somewhere else for a prime minister. Okay, and Kath, coming to Kath. Kath, mm. what, what is the danger? What, just take us through what Boris Johnson has actually said in Parliament that um, that he's committed to now and that might be problematic for him. Well, I mean, he's been very cautious in terms of uh, admitting to the party or not. It was his spokesperson who I think outright said there hadn't been a party at, at some point in the last week. But but Johnson's responses have tended more towards saying that he's not aware of them or, you know, he understands that no rules have been broken. His line at Prime Minister's question was that he has been repeatedly assured that either no party had happened or that there was no breach of, of rules which obviously puts it onto other people as to what they told him. But this kind of goes to what Laura said. It's not just about whether he must have known a year ago. It's also what happened in the last week, because it beggars belief that in the times that he came out, you know, perhaps he wasn't there for all the meetings when the spokesperson decided the line to take. But at some point, Johnson must have had a conversation in the last week. And you assume he must have said, was there a party? If he didn't already know, he must have said, was there a party? Do we call it a party? What's my line? So the idea that, you know, he hasn't knowingly found out whether or not there was a party had a good enough idea. And if it it turns out that there was, and, you know, at some point in the last week, they said, yeah, there was, but we're going to go with this line. Well, then he's culpable in all of that. So, yeah, I mean, as Jill said, it's all political from there on in. You know, there's nothing binding in the ministerial code or indeed in parliamentary practices when it, it comes to this. There's, there are things that MPs can do to sanction him as well as his party. But ultimately, it comes down to his decision making, the decision making of his party. But it's an extraordinary situation to be mm. in when you're talking about a Christmas party. Yeah. And Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, has been asked to investigate what happened. Mm. Is it unusual to give a job like this to the Cabinet Secretary? Um, On one level, no, actually. It goes back decades, uh, Cabinet Secretary's been called in to resign this. And before we had Lord Guite doing these inquiries into breaches of the ministerial code, it would be the Cabinet Secretary who who tended to do that. And it's also, it's a usual tactic to sort of say, something's gone terribly wrong, I I will ask the Cabinet Secretary to investigate it. So, So that's normal. I think what's very difficult here is that on the one level, if there's sanctions for staff, it is a civil service HR job. So that is quite right for the cabinet secretary to investigate. But there's so many other questions here, including whether or not the prime minister ultimately has breached the ministerial code. And those aren't necessarily appropriate for 
the cabinet secretary to investigate, but also it's more awkward because presumably Simon Case has also been part and parcel of these conversations in the last week and also may or may not have known about the Christmas parties when they first occurred, although we are assured he did not attend. Very good points. Jill, does Allegra Stratton's tearful resignation help Johnson? I don't think so, particularly. I mean, it seems to evoke quite a lot of sympathy for Allegra Stratton as, frankly, a bit of collateral damage. I think she might have concluded that her position as a government spokesperson was going to be untenable because if she'd ever appeared to brief people about the follow-up to COP26, which I think was her current day job, uh, she would have just been bombarded with questions like, what was the party? There was a party and stuff like that. So and, and, and also, Boris Johnson stood up in the comments and said that he found the, 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 the video reprehensible. He found the video reprehensible. But I think actually what is what I got the impression, I'm not sure whether others share it, was that actually his fury was the fact there was a video that had given the story extra legs and actually completely torpedoed the number 10 denial strategy rather than the video per se or the attitude she took. I mean, you know, it was like one of those things where uh, my impression was rather than laughing at us, she was nervously giggling at realising that they were on completely indefensible territory here. That's why they couldn't come up with any line to take about this party. Uh, So I think she was just, you know, becoming increasingly aware, partly, I think, probably of what a terrible job she signed up to, uh, to be the official spokesperson. Remember, at that stage, we were expecting in the new year that these on-camera briefings were going to be launched. And this apparently was one of the uh, one of the dress rehearsals for them, which may have persuaded them that that wasn't the bright idea they thought it was back in the summer. Or just too high risk. And just finally on this this whole but huge topic for this week, Laura, before you came on this recording, you were looking into what the Electoral Commission was saying. It's, it's, it delivered a report on the refurbishment of the Prime Minister's flat. Can you just bring us up to date on that? And this is another just sort of unbelievable story because on the surface of it, it's the electoral watchdog find, finding the Conservative Party just under £18,000 for failing to properly declare a donation that went towards the lavish refurbishment of PM's uh, number 10 residence. But when you really look into this report, I actually think the most damaging evidence that has emerged is that the Prime Minister might actually have misled his own independent advisor on ministerial standards, who carried out his own separate inquiry into this refurbishment earlier this year. So in this report, he, he wasn't found to have broken the ministerial code, because he, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, said he'd only been aware that this Tory peer and Tory donor had settled invoices for the refurbishment in February 2021. But this report, this Electoral Commission report, has evidence of a WhatsApp message in which Boris Johnson sent this Tory peer a message asking him to authorise further refurbishment works on the residents. And then there's evidence too that Lord Brownlow replied and said, okay, Roger, that he would approve for further work. And that shows that the Prime Minister has potentially misled his own advisor. And this is another example, I think, of, of Boris Johnson perhaps not being particularly truthful. And it also raises questions about internal government inquiries. This is coming out as a story on Thursday. And Obviously, if we talked about Simon Case is going to be looking into these parties, but it slightly undermines trust in these investigations that are being carried out by people 
within within government and, and I don't know how mm. how much faith and trust the public are going to have in them yeah well this is fascinating more to come on on that one and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it in the future but we're going to have to leave this huge subject and turn to our second one that cheerful Christmassy subject of coronavirus We at the IFG, we're going to have our own Christmas party this week, but we're not now. We're back to working from home. Yes, Omicron is racing through the land, and the Prime Minister has responded by announcing, flanked by the familiar faces of Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and Chief Scientist Patrick Valance, that Plan B is now coming in. Laura, rumours of this Plan B announcement emerged on Wednesday shortly before that fiery Prime Minister's questions. Anything to do on the timing? <laughs> Uh, if I was a cynical journalist, I might suggest that announcing a huge raft of restrictions that affect every single one of us was a slight diversion tactic deployed by Number 10 to take Christmas party allegation stories off the main headlines. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, those stories have not gone away. But clearly, it felt to a number of Tory MPs that I spoke to that there weren't actually any immediate plans to roll out further plan B restrictions and then it might take another week or so for the government to move so it was very unexpected to say the least that on Wednesday morning we suddenly were getting briefings that huge announcements were going to come and then we had this press conference from the Prime Minister that clearly clearly this new variant is posing problems I, I very much expected that we would be moving to working from home guidance and vaccine passports, but I, I honestly was not expecting them to be brought in as early as uh, the end of this week and the beginning of next. How do you think it affects the by-election uh, next week, the Owen Patterson by-election? This um, Boris Johnson must have been hoping to go into that with a sense of having beaten coronavirus, instead of which he's got all the problems about ethics we've been dis discussing and um, on top of this, this very deflating move. I think people are going to be looking at the stories of the parties and then hearing news that they have to restrict their movements and their lives once again and will feel incredibly let down. Of course, there will be some that, that sympathise completely with the government's position on this and probably do support more measures being introduced to help protect the NHS. But... We know there are a lot of Tory MPs who are absolutely furious and fuming at these new restrictions. They are incredibly worried and concerned about the impact that working from home guidance will have on the economy, that this whole this whole conversation will have on people's willingness to go out and go to restaurants. It's going to be a really, really difficult few weeks now for the hospitality industry as parties are, are cancelled. And it's, it's confusing. The government messaging is quite confusing. Don't go to work, but do go mm. to a party. And I think people are feeling pretty, pretty fed up. So it will be a mixed picture, but it, it's definitely not what Boris Johnson would have wanted to do going into such a controversial by-election. Kath, are we back to the old days of governments being guided by the science? This is something that Johnson obviously didn't want to do. Scientists saying you need to do it now. Yeah, I mean, it, the new line is being led by the medical evidence, I think, um, was the one that was trotted out this week. It's hard to say. I mean, we certainly have been seeing warnings from SAGE have been increasing. We discussed this again, I think, last week's podcast or 
before, I can't remember now, that, you know, there had been these greater warnings from Sage that about in particular changing the um, what you do around uh, flights and people coming into the country and making sure that they were getting the right level of testing before they boarded as well as after. And the government has shifted on that. On this, I, I don't know, I'm a bit torn because Part of me thinks that it would have been worse if the government had felt they couldn't move on COVID restrictions because it might look like they were doing something like this, that it was a diversionary tactic. I suspect that there was already a bit of a tension about how quickly to go. We, you know, only the day before we'd been hearing that the cabinets were divided and that actually the majority were in favour of delaying um, making any moves. So so it's clearly the, the Prime Minister's influence. There, you know, he did refer to some new reports that were out about the impact of Omicron and the evidence coming out of South Africa. So it is possible that there was new scientific evidence coming in. But yeah, on in terms of the the restrictions as well. I mean, Laura's hit on it, that this line that don't go to work, but you can have a Christmas party just doesn't work. And there seems nothing other than political awkwardness as to why you would come up with with that kind of line. But it's a really tricky one, obviously, for the entertainment hospitality industry a week before Christmas. I was just going to try and rationalise that line slightly, which I think the key difference between this and uh, the lockdowns we saw last year is obviously that furlough is no longer in operation. So I think what mm. the government is trying to do, if you almost think that you have a sort of contact budget that you're trying to manage, what I think the government's trying to do is to keep open what it calls social consumption, restaurants, hospitality and things like that, because it's not offering any special support for them anymore. And I think I'm sure Rishi Sunak doesn't want to have to go back there to offering support but it thinks that, you know, give or take the odd prêt-à-manger, getting people in this period when quite a lot of people are probably moving toward working more from home anyway, is the way in which you can reduce contacts with minimal impact on the economy. And I think that's the that's the tightrope that they're trying to tread at the moment. And it does get you into this real awkward position that it looks loony, but I think you can sort of go back and say, well, what exactly are they trying to do? They're trying to reduce contacts, to give themselves more space, to slow the spread of Omicron, uh, to get more boosters in while they ramp up the booster effort. And they've decided that this is the less damaging route to do that. And Laura, uh, Johnson dropped in a line about the need for a national conversation on vaccines. Jill was just talking about what the government wants to do. What do you think he means by that? Well, it's it's quite interesting because clearly that's his way of pressuring people who don't necessarily want to get vaccines. But that massively angered his own backbenchers. So it was very interesting to see Sajid Javid, the health secretary, out on the airwaves on Thursday morning, very much rejecting what he described as ethically wrong mandatory COVID jabs. And that's, um, I think, either either shows a slight split within government or is actually more reflective of the prime minister's position there. Clearly, the prime minister is frustrated that those choosing not to get vaccinated are the ones that are going to be having the biggest impact on our NHS. And obviously, when our NHS is at capacity, that's when lockdown measures are introduced. So the, the, the small numbers of people not getting vaccinated are are leading to huge consequences for everybody who is. And I think he maybe wanted to make that point. 
But Sajid Javid's sort of completely opposite response on Thursday morning, I, I feel, is a little bit more effective of, of where government is. Truly, I mean, you've written lots and lots on, on how this government communicates and governments in general. Are you surprised they're not using more in the way of ads? There are some about just driving home this point about how many unvaccinated people are ending up in needing the highest level of hospital treatment. Uh, it's quite interesting. I mean, I have to say I haven't noticed any uh, particular ads on this. I think the government's in a real dilemma here about how it can go about more effectively boosting vaccine uptake. It'd be very interesting to see whether the more widespread use of vaccine passports, which after all in places like France, uh, boosted some of the uptake, whether that generates another boost among people who have uh, who are unvaccinated. Uh, At the moment, you only need two vaccines to get a vaccine passport, not the third one yet. Uh, So it'd be very interesting to see whether that has any effect. But I do think, think, uh, Laura's right, I mean, the real frustration that the Prime Minister, I think, is expressing is that both the sort of displacement of other NHS activity is happening because lots of unvaccinated people are uh, clogging up ICUs and he's forced to contemplate further restrictions, again, to protect the unvaccinated. And I think there is a really interesting question about how long is it really acceptable to inflict restrictions on the vaccinated for the sake of people who are exercising their freedom to remain unvaccinated. But it did sound as though his national conversation might have to start first with his health secretary, who sounded extraordinarily sceptical today beyond the vaccine mandate for NHS and frontline social care staff, which, of course, we already have the latter. Very good point. I'm thinking back, um, and and you've got to be of a certain age and generation even, to um, remember the HIV ads, Don't Die of Ignorance, with a big tombstone, uh, much criticised and and much used in kind of media courses for whether government advertising works or not since then. That was also, of course, at a time when we all duly sat and watched television programmes, including the ads. Absolutely. Rather than you know troll off to the latest streaming platform or fast forward through all those absolutely ads absolutely yeah. it's a real question about whether or not you know, that kind of medium is even accessible to governments even more of trying to get out a message. Okay, well I have every assurance. Sadly, we're still going to be talking about this in some weeks' time. Let's leave COVID and Christmas parties behind and turn our attention for this third part of the podcast to Afghanistan. The UK's withdrawal from Kabul after a 20-year mission has been back in the headlines this week and not for the government in a good way. This week, in an event at the IFG, I chaired a discussion on what that mission, what those 20 years achieved or didn't, and what lessons the UK should learn. One of the panellists was Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP and Chairman of the Defence Select Committee. Here's what he had to say. This has been an astonishing eye-opener to have a 25-year-old junior civil servant expose what was going on. But I think we all knew this anyway, the disjoint between what the MOD was doing and the FCDO. Uh, We can do better than this. I know we've done better in the past. I actually recall going to Jack Straw after the Bali bombings and saying, let's create a crisis centre, which he did. That wasn't used correctly in this this case. It's why we need an, uh, an inquiry into what actually happened there. You know, emails weren't answered. There was an inadequate language skills. They've dissipated. Shortage of IT systems as well. Lack of leadership. We know we can do better. And in the spirit of Global Britain, because we're probably going to have to do this all again, we must do better as well. It's not just FCDO. It's actually the Whitehall construct. We need to be better coordinating 
siloed departments to deal with emergencies such as this. Laura, you've been writing about this for the FT. Who is Raphael Marshall? So this is a very young, very junior civil servant who was only at the Foreign Office for a very short while and was drafted in to basically help with the government's response to thousands of eligible Afghans trying to evacuate the country as it fell to the Taliban. And he has given this devastating testimony to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee where he sets out how junior many of the staff were working on this programme. One afternoon, he was the only one, he says, manning emails from desperate, desperate Afghans trying to flee the country. And he basically paints a picture of a government that was in total chaos, completely dysfunctional. IT systems weren't joined up following the merger of the Department of International Trade and the Foreign Office. He suggests as well that the Prime Minister gave a direct instruction to prioritise the evacuation of animals from Kabul over humans. There there is a litany of extraordinary claims in his testimony, which is incredibly damaging to the government. And why has this had such an impact? He is, as you said, a junior official. What is it about the portrait that has really hit home? I think the fact that he was the one in the room, so to speak, that was actually dealing with all these emails, hundreds of thousands of emails. And he says that he thinks only 5% really of those um, calls for evacuation help were really answered to, and that effectively the the government's incompetence led to thousands of people being left behind to be murdered by the Taliban. And we've obviously had lots of different stories about permanent secretaries, the foreign secretary, all being away during the crisis. The fact you had such a young man in such a position of of, of power here is really quite extraordinary. And he talks about how Dominic Rubb, the foreign secretary, used to ask these very detailed spreadsheets about individual cases. And he suggests that Dominic Rubb didn't really properly understand the situation, what was going on, and that things needed to move a lot quicker. He points to, to a sort of culture where staff were working eight hour shifts and then they were going home that there were some night shifts that weren't fully staffed it's you know I think most of the public who were watching this crisis unfold would have imagined that rooms would have been packed with people doing absolutely everything they could 24 hours a day to help get Afghans out of the country who had helped British forces while while they were there and and he really does suggest that 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 was not the case and that the the British government did not do everything within their power to get people out. We also had in this event uh, Hasina Safi, who was the former acting women's minister in Afghanistan herself, struggling, got out of Afghanistan, she's now in Britain, describing how difficult people were finding it to contact British bureaucracy even now. And we also had Jack Straw former foreign secretary at the time under Tony Blair, full of criticisms of of, of his own um, government and, and the decisions made then, but searing about how the Foreign Office appeared to be handling this now. Jill, was this bad for Philip Barton for a start? He's the permanent secretary, the top, the top official, the top civil servant at the Foreign Office. Okay, I'm going to declare an interest that Philip, uh, I know Philip quite well, uh, he's a friend of mine. Um, but yes, I think it was bad for Philip, um, I mean, he was repeatedly apologising. He was actually rather annoying MPs by the end by how many times he apologised for his decision not just to go on holiday, 
just before Kabul fell. He went on the 9th of August. Kabul fell, I think they put at the 15th of August. But the fact that he stayed on holiday until the 26th of August so well after that and was away for that critical week that Raphael Marshall's um, testimony is about. Um, and he seem, they seem to suggest that he actually left uh, the country. His holiday, as he said, was, was in the UK and somewhere else overseas. And he left the UK after all this had started. Yes. No, he was very reluctant to go into more detail either about that and was also very defensive of the uh, Foreign Secretary's holiday arrangements, the former Foreign Secretary's holiday arrangements. Um, so, I mean, yeah, does it make a huge difference if you're in the UK? It's a bit easier to get back and you know, you're always vulnerable at a time of COVID to travel restrictions, things like that. But I mean, I mean, his argument was that he planned his holiday, he'd got um, got people, he put in place the sort of normal deputising arrangements, there were people overseeing it, there was the sort of special representative for Afghanistan, there was, you know, a substitute, an acting permanent secretary. I think Tim Barrow was the acting permanent secretary at the time, so that there were other people there empowered to make decisions that he otherwise would have been making. And so he'd gone on holiday. But I think, I think, I mean, I think it's a really interesting set of questions. Clearly, Raphael Marshall was deeply scarred by his experience in that crisis centre. So I think it's a real question for FCO management about the support they were giving, exposing quite junior, quite inexperienced and clearly quite fragile people to the sort of decisions that they felt they were being asked to make. And the various occasions when Raphael Marshall talks about, you know, doing very unorthodox things about WhatsApping people, trying to get in touch with the US and things, and then being told that he's breaking security and things like that. So I think it's a huge big issue about the way they run and support these things and the nature of the staffing and things like that. But I mean, you know, I think it's a really interesting question. I think any system, however functioning, would have really, really struggled in that very narrow window because what clearly came across was how uh, surprised they were by the speed of the fall of Kabul and the need to trigger that exercise and the lack of proper advanced contingency planning on how they were going to manage this, the addition of this, uh, you know, people allowed to leave outside the rules, these LOTR evacuees, which massively complicated everything. So I'm, I don't think it would be possible to do, even with absolutely brilliantly functioning things, totally integrated systems to run this brilliantly. But I do think the other thing is Foreign Office... I think, has suffered from Dominic Raab's leadership. It's a very demoralised department. The merger has been very badly handled. They've been, implement, they've been implementing the aid cut over the long time. So I think it's quite an unhappy place, even before it was confronted with, uh, with this as a shock to its systems. Okay, thank you. Just explain for our listeners, LOTR. Uh, it, this is the sort of category of allowing people to evacuate who didn't meet the criteria in the other two schemes. One of the problems here was they were trying to run three evacuation schemes, one run by the MOD, one run by the Home Office, and one run by the FCO. So it was a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare going in. Uh, and these were people who didn't meet the normal criteria. And clearly, uh, because they're keen to make sure that this isn't a sort of route for people uh, who don't qualify to come in, they were trying to do credential checks at very short notice with people, you know, to be told to come forward to board evacuation flights. An incredibly narrow window, a near impossible task. Thank, thank you for that explanation. Not obviously to be confused with Lord of the Rings, which some people might. 
associate those initials with. Laura, Dominic Raab has moved apartments. He's now at Justice. Will this catch up with him? Well, I think, to be honest, this story was, was such a, a big one at the beginning of the week. And it felt as though Philip Barton was in serious trouble. Dominic Raab would be in serious trouble. But obviously the, the leaked ITV footage of Number 10 AIDS joking about party slightly overtook everything and it pushed Afghanistan off the headlines. At one point, I really thought Philip Barton could be on the front page of the Daily Mail, calls for him to go, given it came out that he remained on holiday 11 days after the fall of Kabul. I think Dominic Raab probably is safe. A lot of accusations were made about him and his holiday, but he managed to survive and he will probably still hang on for a while, but there's absolutely no doubt the whole affair is incredibly damaging to his pers- his personal reputation, that he had a bit of a reputation as well within the department for being quite controlling as a manager. And this reflects incredibly badly on him, but I, I, I don't think we're going to see him lose his job now. I, I think he, he's probably moved on and is trying to move as far away as possible as he can from the whole very sorry state of affairs. Thank you. And Kath, just finally on this, at our event, we discussed the prospect of an inquiry into the UK's involvement in Afghanistan. And there are inquiries, as the IFG notes, on all kinds of things, usually mm. very, very justified. And I, I for one, am not sceptical, I mean, not cynical anyway, about what they, they can be very long, they can be very expensive. They do turn up a lot of interesting and important things, as the inquir- Iraq inquiry did. What do you think about the prospect and the desirability of an inquiry into the UK's involvement in Afghanistan? I mean, the main thing is you've got different things that you would want to investigate there. And that is one reason why a larger inquiry that brings it all holistically together could be valuable. I mean, we've been talking about a very acute part of it, the end game effectively. And, you you know, this all came out because there is a parliamentary inquiry going on. There's undoubtedly been loads of internal lessons learned uh, being done. There will be more in the future. I would hope that some that are international where, you know, the bodies involved looked at how they coordinated as well. But I think as, as you touched on and, and came up in the event, the issue here is actually about how to reflect more broadly on the UK's experience in Afghanistan, its involvement, uh, you know, with other countries there and, and their policy over the course of a decade. And that's much more important in terms of bringing together what could be very different kinds of lessons, because some of it will also be about the long period of time in which there was an awful lot of focus on country building, on aid and development and so forth. And there were, you know, very different approaches going on in terms of how departments were working in the country. So there's huge other kinds of lessons that should come out of it. And also just the, you know, the more general reflection on um, was it all worth it? And, you know, what has been achieved? And, and and what are the sort of massive geopolitical lessons to take away from the UK? Because between that and Afghanistan, obviously, it's going to be a huge question about um, how countries operate around the world in the future. So it is something important that should be reflected on. Well, I'd put in my vote for one on Afghanistan. I think there's a lot to be learned from that extraordinary 20 years. Well, With that, we're going to have to draw a close to another episode of Inside Briefing, a long one as there's so much going on. Clearly, one lesson for politicians, be very careful of going on holiday as we head into the holiday season. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Kath Haddon, and especially to Laura Hughes. And thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. 
You can listen to that Afghanistan discussion with Jack Straw, uh, the Foreign Secretary under Tony Blair, Hasina Safi, as well as uh, Tobias Elwood. And it also includes my interview with Electoral Commission Chair John Pullinger about the new elections bill going through Parliament and indeed a few comments on the Prime Minister's flat. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Kick back with some cheese and wine and listen in. Do leave us a review. And don't forget to check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our work. In the meantime, we're back at work, but at home, wondering when in the new year we'll be having a rescheduled Christmas party. See you next week.